states. I'm not going to go into this. We've done it. But what happens is in that moment, because he's refused to live that way of life, and he knows that there's something intrinsically good to man, a new spirit is introduced into that world. There's an intrinsic dignity to human beings that it didn't have before. Homer's the one who... Um, he picks that up with the Odyssey and marriages, and Virgil picks it up with cities in the founding of Rome. So every epic um, deals with the refounding. And where was I going? Every epic, more interestingly, I think, every epic ends with what we know in the church as a parousia, a second coming, a parousia, the coming of Christ. Every one of those epics ends with a parousia action. Achilles returns to the king. He's a king. He returns to the world. When he does, nobody can touch him. Nobody. New armor. It's a stunning thing to watch. Nobody can, nobody. And that war will end, finally. Same thing in the Odyssey. Um, it's, it's a new understanding of marriage between a man and a woman. I can't go into it now because it's not the time. And then with Virgil, it's with the city. So in each one of those epics, they end with a parousia, the return of the king, Achilles, Odysseus. Aeneas, without even knowing it, is returning home. It's his ancient home. His forebears come from Italy, even though he's, he's left Troy because it was destroyed. Every one of those epics deals with a human being called out to be the instrument of a founding. And every one of those epics ends with a Perusia action. That's before Christ comes. So how, how in the world did those guys do that? So what I set out in that, you know, lining up the two prophetic traditions, I put the epic tradition, lined it up, and it's amazing because you watch just about the time of um, Moses, the Trojan War takes place. Homer doesn't write about it until eight, 400 years later. But you watch this epic tradition folding, dealing with this spirit, helping a people to renew itself, this great battle that has to take place. I believe we're in the middle of one right now. So, um, so that's how we began. And then we went from the ancient epics to Dante. Dante's doing something similar on the, on the threshold of modernity. I, I can't go into this now. They're all online. I'll, I'll come back to that. But that's it. So we did the ancient world, came up at Dante. Um, we took a, a break and did uh, Milton and Paradise Lost to set Protestant and Christian souls, which was an amazing time. It took us back to the Reformation to look at differences there online. I'd, I'd recommend going back and listening to it. And we picked up again. So we went back to Boethius, who I think is, along with Augustine and St. Thomas, the most undervalued person in the, in the Middle Ages. We read Constellation of Philosophy, and then we went on to Chaucer. And Chaucer is filled with Boethius. You can't read Boethius and read Chaucer and not see Boethius everywhere. Um, when we did Boethius, we, um, we started with The Knight's Tale, which is about Theseus, who's the founder of Western civilization. We're going back. I hope, I know this is fast, but I, I, I've got to, if you can just hold on to me for a second. Theseus is the founder of Western civilization. We're back at foundings, except Chaucer Christianizes him. He's carrying the past forward, and he's actually doing that because he's learned it from Homer, Virgil, Dante. Every one of those epic poets is carrying the past. The Trojan War was 1200. Homer wrote in 800. Every one of them is carrying the past forward and um, renewing it, redeeming it by by what they're doing and bringing it into the present moment 
to help a people, to Mary's question, to help a people better see itself, what its disorders are. So we started with that. We took a break because I didn't want to lose the chance, and we looked at Shakespeare's treatment of Midsummer, or, uh, Theseus, Midsummer Night's Dream. He's going back, doing the same thing, but Shakespeare's doing something Chaucer wasn't, and I don't want to go into that. And, um, and now we're back to Chaucer. We're going to finish Chaucer, and then we're going to go to Shakespeare, which is where I'm going to go in a minute, and come forward. So sort of basically that's... We're going to do Shakespeare after this, and um, I'm getting hard-pressed at home to do Scarlet Letter. Is that a yes or a no? We're going to do Scarlet Letter. We're doing Scarlet Letter. Moan again. Moan again and see if it helps. This, by the way, if you're touchy here, wrong class. Find another class. Are you eventually going to do Antony and Cleopatra? Yeah, I'm kidding. Yes, we are. We're doing that. And then, I don't know, if, I think probably, I don't know about the Scarlet Letter. We may do that because it, it fits so well with Moby Dick. I mean, we're back in America here, and adultery, and, and then we're going to do T.S. Eliot's The uh, Murder in the Cathedral, which takes us back to Chaucer and um, St. Thomas Beckett, you know, because that's the backdrop for um, Canterbury Tales, and our plan was to end with um, Dostoevsky. Yeah, but we might do Scarlet Letter after that again, because it's... <laughs> Wow, I have a hard enough time reading in English. <laughs> That's what we're doing. I want to answer Mary's question. I, I've come at this um, a number of times, but the argument that I've made from the beginning and a number of times is that by prophetic, I do not mean seeing the future at all, absolutely. And the point that I wanted to underscore when we first started, and I've done it a number of times, um, literature is not making that claim. What I was claiming is that when you look at the traditions and the prophets, one of the major principles of defining the prophets in the, in the Old Testament leading up to Christ is not telling the future. Revelation does that, but the prophets don't. What, does, what sets the prophets aside is they've been called out by God um, to help a people look at itself and its disorders to get back to God because they're all in disorder. They're in apostasies of one. I mean, they're turning from him and rebelling. The prophets um, are, are speaking the truth about a people that they don't want to hear. So the, the position that I've been taking from the beginning is one of the great things of all these works is that they're helping us to see things about ourselves that ordinarily we don't want to see. And that's their greatness. And the really great ones do that. So there's a prophetic element. They're going underneath the surface. They're going underneath the surface to show us deeper things. But let me go back here just to add. Um, you weren't here. Mary, I think you've been here when we did Plato. But if you go back to the play, cave, Plato's cave allegory, you remember that Plato's argument was that it's only when a man begins to question himself that he can come out of the cave. We're going to go this in. I'm sorry for the rush here, but Mary's question is um, such a good one, and I don't want to. I want to. I don't want to treat it lightly. Um, it's the whole Socratic tradition. So long as you're in the cave, you're stuck. Right. You you think that what's in front of you is the truth, 
and you don't understand the, the causes of things. It's only the man who begins to question himself that begins to gradually come out. You know that that's Socrates. And eventually they kill him because they don't like, to be, they don't like anybody to question what they know. They, they, they think they know everything, that they've got all the answers. That's sort of prophetic in itself. Um, he's executed. That's a, like a foreshadowing of Christ. Um, Plato's argument is it's only the man who comes out of the cave who sees the eternal things. That poet is the only one Plato wants to allow in his city because he knows that all other poets are misleading. If you, I don't know if you've read the allegory, but the allegory shows figures in front of a fire and the light from the fire casts shadows on the wall. And all the figures are carrying books. So what the, the shadows are the the, the products of books, what form, I, I'm trusting everybody's going to know this in depth, what forms our mind are books. There's not a thing we see in the world that isn't filtered through a book. Not one of us in this room would have a mind to be here if we hadn't read books. They shape the way we see things. We don't see things as they are. We see things through books. They have a powerful influence. Plato was critiquing that. He said, it's only the persons who see the eternal unchanging things who can bring that into his writing to help people see that, that will be in his city. And the argument that I've been making from the beginning is every one of these poets have been showing us universal truths. But they're the ones who help us to see the deepest things, to get us past surfaces. Marx, Freud, feminism, Darwin, whoever the modern ideologies are, that there's deeper truths. They're not... These are not the passing things. The great poets are the ones who show us the passing things, what's underneath them. So in that sense, they're like the ancient poets. They're not showing us the future. They're not making a claim. Except, I mean, if you, those of you who have done Midsummer, or Merchant of Venice, you know that what Shakespeare, we're going to do Merchant of Venice again, you know that what Shakespeare is showing us is something that's not going to change in the commercial regime. This is the root cause of all the problems. Read that play, and you will understand America 100 years ago, and you'll understand America 100 years from now. Because he's showing us root things. So the whole purpose of this course was to do that and find Christ, where he's at work. What, what, what these poets help us see about God, Christ working in the world. That's what we've been doing, so... Um, sorry, I, I've got to get on, but just to give you some sense of Thank what we're so doing, there's a lot there. Um, they're on tape. The tapes have been moved off the homepage online. There's a little bit of awkwardness going on about it, but if you go into, if you type in, if you go online and type in literature's prophecy, it takes you right to the site. Go to that page, and at the top it'll say playlist. Hit playlist, and it'll give you all the various works. Yeah, I think I, I was able to get it on SoundCloud. Right. Yeah. That's where it is. Right. Oh, God. I'm ready to go home. <laughs> that was the whole course, practically the whole course. God. God. Where's me out? Just so you know, it's taken, what, four years mm -hmm. to get here. I mean, a lot of people have been foolish enough to stay with it. Um, there's a lot there. 
the, the underlying purpose for me is that I really believe Catholics have lost a sense of tradition, God at work in the world, and part of the, one of the underlying reasons is to recover some sense of that tradition for us to carry it in what we're doing because it makes a difference how we live in our world. So it's a big thing for me. Is everybody ready? Can we start? Um, I think what I'd like to do, because I just took this time and I wasn't planning, I'm going to, I'm going to, if I can, unless there's a really important prayer, we usually start with prayers, um, unless there's a really important prayer, I'd, I'd like to just make a prayer. If any, if any going on, let me know right now, and I'm glad to include it, okay? We take time for prayers at the beginning. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Sorry, are these on, Doc? They're both recording already? They got all that? Wow. I don't know if there's anything in there that should be censored. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass. Um, oh, God. Um, we carry so much pride into what we do in our work. Awful, the problems it creates. Um, you didn't come here because we were deserving. You, you came when we weren't deserving and you asked us to love each other that way. Um, not because our wife deserves it or our husband or our kids, um, but because we're all undeserving. A great cross to follow you. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that, please. Um, help make us our hearts better. Um, I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing here. Help us to keep our minds open to see these truths, to live them, not to just know them, to live them in our lives. Genuinely live them, not leave them in our heads. Um, I ask a blessing on Marcy and Bob. And um, um, your sister? Barbara. Yeah. Um, particularly Mars, um, surround her with your protection, heal her. Um, um, let this visit with Bob's son be a good one and um, watch over him on his travel back home. Um, ask for a blessing on David and Millie too. Help David in his recovery. It's so good to hear he's doing well. Um, Chester. And, um, um, and their daughter, and watch over that young woman, help her. Um, for all the other prayers, whatever burdens we carry in our hearts in this group, help ease them. But w whatever goes on, help us to remember Boethius' truth. It's at the center of our faith. We should be thankful for everything, even, even what appears to us to be awful. Because we know, we know you're at work. If Christ showed us anything, he showed us that unto death. Um, strengthen every one of us in our faith, so no matter what goes on in our world, to trust in you, to take a joy, most of all when the suffering's great. Um, help us all to do that. Um, we offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. One last business matter I forgot before we begin. Um, tonight we're doing the women in Chaucer. Um, next week, I've asked everybody to do the clerk's tale. It's the Griselda story. 
Um, it, I think it's an embarrassment for most feminists. It's a, it's a hard story. It's a, it's a hard story to read. Griselda is this very obedient woman, just very obedient, and her husband tests her again and again and again and again. But sometimes I think you, you reach a point where you want to pick the book up and throw it at him if he were physically present. Um, keeps testing her, and she remains faithful through the whole thing. She's an extraordinary figure. Chaucer warns us, <laughs> don't, don't fool around with that. Uh, most women are not going to do that, he says. But she's an extraordinary woman, and in some ways she embodies what Christ has asked of all of us, an absolutely self-sacrificial love. How do we do that in our, you know, we so often grumble and complain and argue, and obedience I don't think comes easy for any of us, but she's an image of that. She's just absolutely obedient. That's why so many people don't like her. But I'm asking everybody to read that because in and together with what we're doing tonight with the women, it'll, it, it'll put together Chaucer's treatment of women. I'll, I'll set it against the men we've been looking at in a minute, but that's what we're doing. But I'm asking everybody to read that along with Shakespeare's All Well, All's Well That Ends Well. You've all read Merchant of Venice, and you know an extraordinary woman Portia is. You all know, sorry if you haven't read it, but you all know that in Merchant of Venice, when Shylock calls in his bond, and, and takes Antonio to court, that if Shylock has his way, he says, I, with all the reasons they give him, he said, I want my bond, I want my bond. They offer to pay him 10 times over the amount. He will not, literally the law entitles him, even, even though there's money there to pay it. He says, no, I want my bond. He is angry, his daughter is eloped with a Christian. Um, he, wa he wants his pound of flesh. That's what he wants. Um, if if Anto Antonio's the merchant, repeatedly he's called the merchant, if Antonio dies because Shylock exacts his bond, Venice goes down. It's dead. Who's going to enter into a contract if that's the cost of it? Shylock wants his bond. The Christians say, let the bond go. Let the bond go. Portia says, if I do that, it'll be a precedent for freedoms. Venice will be destroyed. If the bond isn't upheld, who's going to enter into a, a contract? The, na the nature of the commercial regime, this is Shakespeare's treatment of us, prophetic. The nature of the commercial regime is contracts, enterprise, risking. It encourages people to a freedom they never had in the feudal ages, you know, under lords and manors. And the, the, what distinguishes us historically as a regime is this love of freedom that, that we we were empowered to make our own choices, not under the church, not under the emperor. That freedom was held up as a prize. And the result of it is this, this comes out of, the, this, out of the Renaissance, this new regime. Shylock has his will. Antonio's dead. Venice is dead. The Christians have their will. Um, bonds are worthless. Who's going to enter in? If either one of those sides, the Christians... Or, the, or Shylock, have their way, the commercial regime is gone. So what Shakespeare is doing is showing what has to happen in order to reconcile those two extremes. And what he does is extraordinary. I mean, he's answering Plato. He's, he's got to show us what has to happen in, the, in what we do in our everyday life dealing with the commercial regime. She's an extraordinary heroine. It isn't a man who does that. And there's no lawyer stepping forward from Venice. It's somebody from outside Venice, and it's a woman. So Portia is one of Shakespeare's most extraordinary 
feminine figures. All's Well That Ends Well um, presents an, the Shakespeare's, the, the women in his Shakespeare's are amazing women. It's just what he, what he, what he, and I think this is all Christianity from Mary and Christ and you know, what human beings are capable of, the wisdom and the goodness in them. Um, Helen is an extraordinary woman. I'd like you to read it because I'd like you to set her against Griselda. Because Griselda, in a sense, is a product of the Middle Age Christianity, a, a Catholic world. Helena is an image of, a, of a, a Catholic woman in the modern world after Machiavelli. All's well that ends well. The ends justify the means. You can hear Machiavelli behind that. So we have to talk about what she does. Machiavelli, virtuous. I'm just asking questions. You got, you're going to have to read to find out. Um, so next week we do Griselda and All's Well That Ends Well. Okay? Any questions about that? Cole, I'm giving you a quiz if you're bad next week. <laughs> I'm not saying that to everybody else because if I do, they won't show up. <laughs> I'm, trust, I'm trusting, trusting you got more heart. We've been having, I don't think anybody in this room misses a chance to heap coals on anybody else's. Okay, that's, so next week, Shakespeare. Very, very quickly, I want to do this quickly because I really want to focus on them. Some of the major concerns with Chaucer, this, this he gets from Boethius. You remember Boethius said, there is no bad fortune, none. And he made an argument showing why. The reason is Boethius, <laughs> I don't know if you've read Consolation, but if you, you know that it begins with Boethius. Boethius is a very good man, a very a politically astute, a virtuous man. He's been condemned for something he didn't do, he's going to be executed. This is true, it's, it's historically true. It begins with him whining in jail because he's been treated unfair. It's the Job story. He's been treated unfairly, and the, the issue he's raising is why does God allow um, evil men to prosper and good men to suffer. If this God is a good God, how could he do this? Boethius is really angry. If this is a good God, how can he, how can he allow this? And, and eventually, the um, lady philosophy who comes to visit him says, you're whining and crying the way you are because you've forgotten your ends and your beginnings. Who you, you don't, he said, this, this is, you have to go online. You've lost your memory, anamnesis. You've forgotten what you once knew, who you once were. And the only way to get out of this is to, to remember your beginnings and your ends. And she takes him through this long Socratic dialogue. It's pretty amazing. He, she finally takes him to questions on fate and predestination and free will. It's an amazing. But in, the, <laughs> there's that. in that dialogue, she reaches a point where she makes it clear to him that there is no fortune that's bad. Because our good is, whatever failings we make, whatever stupid things we do, he's working to bring some good out of them. Um, every minute, every instant. How could he not? If, if God, in the Bible, God knows the souls. He searches the souls. He knows, he knows our faults better than we do. Um, um, no reason to run for them. I mean, he knows us. Um, he's a loving God. He wants us back. So, um, and, and I've said this repeatedly, one of the first things she says to him when he's crying and complaining is that the problem with you is you've read too much poetry, too much literature. 
you need to read more philosophy. So she tells him to knock it off and she takes him on this journey. Bonum est diffusum. Goodness is diffusive. This is a good God. Goodness is diffused through the entire universe. This is so different from a Protestant world. The Protestant believes the effects of the fall were complete. We're corrupt. Think about the difference between those two worldviews. The Catholic believes we're wounded. We have something to overcome. Think about growing up. God, that just so upsets me. Think about growing up in a family that says everything's corrupt. Everything's corrupt. The Catholic believes we're not corrupt. We're wounded. And the wound overcomes us. I mean, it's overwhelming, the effects of the fall. But we're not corrupt. Boethius says, Augustine and Thomas, um, bonum est diffusum. Goodness is diffusive. It's everywhere. How could it not be? God made everything. His goodness is everywhere at work. So it's a very radical different view from the modern view. And it defines Chaucer because Boethius is everywhere in him. What Chaucer shows us in every one of the stories is, is something's at work in every one of these stories to bring justice to what's going on. Whatever the level, whatever class, whatever individuals, God's at work, according to the degree, whatever they're doing. That's the first. The second is Chaucer um, is carrying forward this humanist tradition. Plato, Aristotle, Virgil, Homer, you know, all the great pagan writers, St. Augustine loved them, that they're the ones who most fully showed us our human nature, what we're doing. Whether we like it or not, we may not like to look at this stuff, but it's us. And the, these great poets are teaching us to look at what's ugly in the world, instead of crying about it the way Boethius does, to see, the, to, see our, to test our faith, to see whether we see there's some good coming out of it. So all of the stories are dealing with awful things, things that ordinarily we don't want to see about ourselves, but that's what I'm arguing is one of the prophetic qualities of it. So he's carrying forward this humanist tradition, but he's Christianizing it. We saw that in the Night's Tale. Every one of the stories, every one of the stories in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales has this ideal. Every single one of the stories is measured against this ideal. It's the most important virtue in the book, self-sacrificing love. There's not a story that he tells that doesn't imply that good. I don't want to go through them all, but if you did the Night's Tale, you know that it, it's only because each person has to come to a point where they have to give up their will. Um, our seat wants Emily, so does Palamon. Our seat defeats Palamon. Ha Palamon has to give her up. Our seat dies. He has to give her up. She, Emily didn't want to marry. She has to deny herself. Every single character in that story, opening story has to deny themselves. It's the most Christ-like virtue. And you're going to see that again and again and again and again. And if you don't see it explicitly, it's because it's the backdrop to the action. Because lots of people are not doing that. Remember, we looked at the partner last week. He's an evil guy. He's a church functionary. He's using the church. This, this, all, all the people we looked at last week were church functionaries. They're, they're, they are serving the church. Every one of them is using the church for his own gains. They work for the church. They're corrupt. So the farther, the last thing you can say about them is they're denying themselves or serving. They're just not good men. So, so Chaucer's a realist. He, he's a realist. Um, one of the stories that we looked at last, I did the topaz thing, right? Yes. Good. Yeah, yeah. 
you remember, I can't keep going, you've got to stay with me. You remember the Topaz story, it's a self-parody. Chaucer's finally, at the host says, you tell the story. And Chaucer's bumbling and says, I, I can't tell the story. It's just, it's a good piece of self-parody. But we see from the story, nothing happens. Topaz goes off, he's a knight, he goes off on this adventure. He's describing the flowers, the birds. He's, he's like a, a modern poet who thinks the beauty of his poetry is elegance of line, articulate, flowery. You know? the, the question is, what happens? Nothing happens. What Chaucer's showing us is that there has to be a purpose to a story because art has to form a, a self-contained whole. And I gave the example. If you read the Reeves tale or the Miller's tale, take the wife of Bath, doesn't matter. Take any one of those tales. Take Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Stop any one of those stories in the middle of it. Take the Miller's tale when um, Absalom goes off or comes to the window and asks, here, let me do this. He asks um, Allison for a kiss. Let's say she sticks out her rear. This is what happens. She's going <laughs> to let out a fart, and it's described as being thunderous. And... Let's say the story. Here, I want everybody to come on. Let's say Chaucer stops the story right when she sticks her rear out the window. It's over. How would it be? You'd have to make up your own imagination as to how it would be. But, I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, what's it what for? What's... I mean, you see that there has to be a purpose in it. An action, an action has to be complete in itself. I gave the example last week. Propaganda has as its end something external to the artwork. I, I gave an example of some fundamentalist movies. You, you know their aim is didactic. It's outside the movie. They, they want to achieve something. Art has an end in itself. It has to be self-contained, complete. It has to have a purpose in view, worked out. Because we're meant to contemplate, this is St. Thomas. When we look at a, a work of art, we see, this is St. Thomas, we see an image of beauty, the ultimate source of beauty, Christ. We have to see a, a thing complete, unified in itself. It has to have a unified action, a reason for being one thing and not another. So a work of art has to have its end in itself. Okay. So... Chaucer's making fun of himself, but he's also teaching us that there's... And what's the end of everything? Bonum diffusum. It, it's, that God is working something out. We won't know the end of it until he completes the story. Look at a lot of modern artworks. What do they do? They create a work of art to show how absurd the world is. There is no meaning. They will, brock, they will break it off. They'll show us a purposeless universe. That's the nature of modern art. Is everybody following? I'm going really fast because I'm... A work of art is to be complete in itself. It, it has its purposes there. We, we have to uncover it. That's our work. Um, and his rhyme scheme. This is one of the most important insights I've ever come It's amazing. You, I, I keep doing this class, and I think I've been teaching this stuff for 30 years. When we did the Moby Dick thing, it knocked me off my feet. When we were doing Chaucer, it knocked me off, of feet, my, me off my feet a week. I realized I didn't see this before. I said... The rhyme scheme. We did this, right? Mm -hmm. All the couplets. You can't read Chaucer without hearing the rhyming. It never stops. It's his way of showing there's a harmony and order no matter what he's describing. That's absolutely Boethian. It's absolutely Christian. Doesn't matter. Remember when we did the Night's Tale? The last four pages were of grief. 
everybody's crying and wailing because our seed is dead. You know, they won't stop crying. Chaucer will not let us cry. I read that aloud so you'd hear it. You can't read that. These descriptions about our seat dying and Emily grieving and everybody crying and weeping. Chaucer's giving rhyme schemes. One of the parishioners um, on Friday, um, Fred and Francis, you know they're sometimes in the evening, he, he followed that up, I thought, with a beautiful, I'd made the point in his, his response. It was, it's really good because you see, if Chaucer was giving us heroic couplets, pairs of lines that rhyme, and then suddenly he stopped rhyming and you didn't pick up the rhyme for 10 lines, he said it would allow you to go back into that grief. Chaucer won't let it happen. It's, it's Boethius. He's reminding us. It's all that harmony. You can't read it aloud without... I, I give you an example. Turn around the backyard. Look at a bird. Look at a tree. Look at a flower. Look at a bee. You're going to find beauty everywhere. How many of us take it for granted? If, we, if our eyes were open, if we were reading poetry well, we'd see beauty everywhere. The poets are always calling us back to this beauty, this truth, this the things we don't see, God or... So, um, we talked about the importance of poetry again. Um, you know, um, and, and I want to elaborate it. I, what I tend to do is build off of what we're doing. You know that. Um, I, want to, I want to just say one thing more t tonight about poetry that I haven't said before. One of the things that's interesting to watch and by the way, when you do the Franklin's tale, remember when the magician comes up, they want somebody to, um, Aurelius wants the rocks to disappear so um, um, Dor Dorjan can have, be reunited with her husband, he can return safely. I, I hope everybody, does everybody see how closely that magician, that law student, resembles the poet? He works illusions. He does things that nobody else can do. Um, but by the way, that's Plato's description of the poet in the Republic, that the poet is the one who can make us see things that ordinarily we don't see. The question is, is he, has he come out of the cave, and come, or is he working illusions that are not good illusions? Word here, this is the claim I want to make tonight. Words are efficacious. They don't just, this is the modern world. world. Words don't just mean things. That's modern. They don't just, they're not semantic. They just don't signify. They do. But they don't do just that. Words effect. They, God said, let there be. What came into existence was one with his word. There was no separating them. It came into being. Okay? When, a, when an umpire says, out, you can argue with him forever, he's out. Would that out take place if he didn't say out? No. I mean, the batters would be crying and whining and, or, or, you know, the runner at third base or something. Um, words are efficacious. When somebody speaks something, it comes into being. That's Christ, the word, the logos. John, you know, the, the, the word is the, um, the means of creation. Christ, the word is one with his creation. He's in it. He's um, just like the poet is always with his writing. Let me give you a better one, which to me is sort of stunning. When we're at an altar, man and woman, and the priest says, will you, and you say, I do. 
How is it possible that uttering, uttering those words, I do, have such significance in our lives? Because when we do that, we pledge our lives. Not so for a lot of moderns. You know that. You can break your vow. One of the most important themes in all of Chaucer is holding to your vows. Because if you break your vows, you break who you are. You, you break that contact between your speaking a word and making that word living. Almost every one of his tales has to do with that. People are making oaths all the time. You know that because you've been reading them. So words don't just mean when we, when we speak, it's who we are. It reveals us. If our words are stupid, there's something stupid in us. You know, we all carry something foolish. I mean, we do foolish things all the time. But So Faulkner, I mean, sorry, Chaucer knows that. That's why he plays on oaths and words. You know, we saw it a couple times last week. Remember in the one tale where the, the, um, the seminar met the yeoman, who was the devil, and they come across that farmer, and the farmer says, curse you. And the, um, and the seminar said, take him. Mm-hmm. Was it the seminar or the mm-hmm. Yeah. Seminar. He said, take him. And the devil said, no, because he didn't mean it. And I talked about this because it was really disturbing to me. That's I, I, why I left you with that question. When the woman says, curse you to hell, remember then? He's gone. I, I was stunned by that. That's why I asked the question, was it her curse that sent him to hell? And everybody said no, because he's damning himself. But think about the efficacy. She's the occasion for that act. You can't separate them. And I said, she, she's standing with Peter. Who you loose, who you bound. So words don't just mean... Um, and I know lots of us have been beaten up by words. I mean, we've grown up with them and... Um, but what Chaucer is showing us is that um, word, people use words in bad ways. We live in a workforce that just is abusive in the way they use words. Chaucer is showing us that it's important to take care of what we say. And there's almost nothing that he says that isn't funny. It's all funny. He's not. He's managing to show us a, you know, our whole world, but he does it with some humor. So words are efficacious. Um, one more thing, two more things it seems to me one of the most important things we take away from Chaucer is Chaucer is teach unlike moderns, unlike moderns, Chaucer is teaching us not to be ashamed of our bodies. I tried to say that as strongly as I could last week because I, I had the feeling when I was when we were doing the some of the tales that was the uh, Miller's tale when uh, when Allison was sticking her rear end out the window and Absalom was asking for a kiss and she Farts. I mean, that's Chaucer's language. Um, I had a, the sense that some was hard for a lot of people to hear because we're not used to hearing that language. Um, and I know because um, there's an on-school homeschooling Catholic program that did uh, our study guide. We wrote the study guide for the whole, all the great books. And the people asked us to do it. It's, it's a pretty amazing project. And it's Catholic homeschool. And at one point, they contacted me and said they wanted me to take out all the Catholic questions, because clearly they were getting business from non-Catholics and they would not lose it. And at some point they said some of the Catholics were getting in touch with them to ask why in the world they would be teaching anything like Chaucer. They were horrified because they think of Chaucer as being so lewd. I huh? Yeah, immoral, Body. lewd. Body. The, I think the problem is we, 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 we're the product of a, of a Puritan world. 
And Chaucer isn't. I mean, that's it. You know, he, he has that, <laughs> Allison sticks out her rump, she lets him fart. Um, that Nick scene, um, Absalom comes back to get back at her. Um, Nicholas puts out his rear end, ready to let out a fart, and Absalom brands him with a fire. I mean, then there's this big yell, and the roof comes down. It's just, it's, I mean, it's hilarious. But, and there's another one, you remember, where the guy says, um, where they want to get back at the priest for the way he's screwing the church, and the guy that he's trying to screw says, put your rear end, I'll, I'll give you this, and he puts his hand on her and lets, passes gas again. And, and the guy, the friar, is so embarrassed, and he goes and talks with these parishioners who sympathize with him because they think he's such a good priest. And then the squire says, I'll, I'll tell you how to do it, because the, Thomas says, I'll, I'll give you the money if you can equally divide this into 12 parts. It's a conundrum. I mean, they're playing with language, but the squire says, have all your friars in your, or in your house, the 12 of them, go to this wheel, line up, put your nose to the wheel, and you know, the guy, it's just, it, I mean, Chaucer's having fun with our body. Um, one of the most important things to take away from this is, and I, 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 I gave the example, Christ was a man, yeah? He went to the bathroom, he ate. Did Christ not go to the bathroom? He ate. No, I'm not kidding, I'm just not kidding. He had a body. Um, the, the tendency, I mean, I, I think John Paul's Theology of the Body is one of the most important books that's ever been written. He's answering the disorders of our age. People grow up today disgusted with their bodies. Tom, one of the parishioners on Friday morning when I was making this point said, he, he's a psychologist, he and his wife are psychologists. He described this workshop they went to years ago where everybody had to strip down to their underwear, take all their clothing off, and they had to go touch each other or, you know, come. And how, how, how did, oh, were you there, Doug? What did he say? The, they had to get past their embarrassment of their body because the whole purpose of the work, the workshop was all of them had grown up with these horrible guilt feelings about their bodies and the shame of them and the disgust of them. And, you know, they're trying to help them realize that the, we're human. It's one of the things we took away from Dante. Dante celebrates the body. That's, what, that's how we're different from the angels. It's our bodies that make us human. Every attempt to be angelic to escape our bodies is an affront. It's our glory. It's what makes us who we are. Chaucer's helping us to laugh at the body, to just not take ourselves so seriously, because when we do, we tend to get too angelic out of our bodies. And well, and God didn't create clothing. We created clothing out of shame. <laughs> right, right. Like, if God had his way, none of us would have ever worn Right. You know, so that's that's why all the cathedrals in Europe are covered with images of naked bodies because there's nothing wrong with the naked right. form. God created that form and, and right. said that it was a good thing. Yeah. What's right, exactly. The trouble is we live in a fall and we have to cover up our nakedness because that's an effect of the fall. Um, um, okay, those are some of the major things. Where's Christ? We talked about the most of all in the form as things work out. Just um, one more thing this week, and then I want to look at the stories. I've said it already, but let me underscore and repeat it. The most important thing for Chaucer, what governs his writing, is self-sacrificial love. Not everybody fulfills it. We're going to see it tonight. When the three men that we looked at last week, the friar, the summoner, the partner, all church officials, the last thing you can say about them is that they were 
living up to the love that they were called to. Every, every one of them was using the church for himself. Chaucer is very clear on it. There's, the church is right. The church is okay. Dogmas of the church are sound. You don't change the dogmas. That's Christ. That's, the church is Christ. But what people do with it, he showed us in those. What they're doing is, are awful things. Um, so we looked at the, the church officials last week. The, the point that I just want to underscore, because we're going to look at it with the women tonight. The guiding ideal for Chaucer... What, what, what sets his work apart, let's say even from Shakespeare, he, read, he was a good reader of Dante. He read Dante and he read Boethius. It's, it permeates Dante. The most important virtue, the, the virtue par excellence of the Middle Ages was Christian love. love. Self-sacrificing love. Loving another for the good of that person's self. And sacrificing oneself for that person, for that good. And we're seeing in the stories that people do that at different degrees. Um, but in almost every story, justice is served. That's, that's his way of showing there's an end. Every story has a purpose. It's to reveal this justice, God at work, doing what Boethius said, bringing a justice. So even, let's say even in the, in the Reeves tale, remember when they knock the reaver down and they're kicking him at the end. It's a, it's a violent story. But he's, the miller's getting his justice. He's been, he's been using people for years. He just, he robs them. He cripples their lives. He takes their money away. So um, there isn't a story in, in which the major characters don't get served for a justice. There's a, an order to things. They can't escape it. Um, okay, the women. Okay, let's, let me, I want to look at the four women Constance, um, I know you didn't, or you may have, I, there wasn't a study guide on the Man of Law tale, but um, Constance, the prioress, the wife of Bath and Dorigen. Before we start, because I want to, I want to just quickly go through these stories, and I've got some, some important questions. Anybody have any comments about Chaucer? Any, anything that I've been saying up to this point? Remember when you read them, it's really important to read aloud so you can hear the rhymes. It's really important. It makes a difference in how you understand the story. I've been pushing everybody from the beginning to read aloud to, to, to get out of our heads so we hear, actually hear the poetry. Oh! I forgot. Lurk. Too late. That's <laughs> my wife talking. Look at that. Can we get a picture, please? <laughs> we'll pick it up next week. We begin every class with a with a prayer, and then I read a lyric because I want to keep people close to lyric and the music, and because the lyrics can usually speak more directly, more visibly, explicitly to Christ about Christ reveal Him somewhere. I got carried away at the beginning of the class, so I forgot about the lyric. We'll pick it up. Any questions on anything that's been set up to this point about Chaucer or the stories? I hope you're enjoying him. He's, no, he's, are you Mary Jane? Why? Why do you like him? Because they're easy to read and Yeah. Okay. They really are easy. Sorry, go ahead. 
You don't you don't have the semantic or syntactic difficulties you have with Faulkner. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm amazed. I'm, honestly, when I read him, I am I'm not kidding. I, I I live I'm not exaggerating. I live in absolute astonishment that he could write simple declarative sentences and rhyme. Think about how to to rhyme every two lines. To, to write declarative sentences, simple, straight, I mean, easy to read, they really are, that he can be as simple as he is and still rhyme, to me is, think about the mastery of our language for a poet to do that. It's stunning. You guys write ten lines with couplets and write simple declarative statements. You're right. And, and, and express an action, beginning, middle, and an end. This is not slapstick. It's not slapstick. It does have some, yes. It's not, this is great poetry. I know that, but it's not my favorite. But there is some slap, there is, yeah, there is. Okay, let's. So this is growing up with my brothers. Say again? This is kind of reminds me of my brothers. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, just the language and the. Oh? Is that a good thing? Yeah. Good. Yeah, it's the same with I mean. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's more like childish. Yeah, it's like a sophomoreish. And I don't like sophomore. I'm sorry. This is not sophomoric. This is genius. I understand that. But didn't you know anybody who didn't do some of these things? You, let me ask. You try to do this. You try. Wait, let me. How about I'll give you this homework. You try to deal with an awful situation. To some, like the partner. I mean, yeah. he's dealing directly with evil. Directly with evil. You try to do this and be cheerful and keep it up. Wait, here, here's the point. Actually, it's taking me. One of the most amazing things about this is what I want. Sorry, I lost it. One of the most. No, I'm going to wait till afterwards. I'm going to wait till we do the movie. <laughs> Sorry. 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 It's my question. Sorry. Sorry. Let's go. <laughs> the women. Sorry. <laughs> let's, let's look at the women. Um. In the Man of Law Tales, the Man of Law is what we would call a lawyer today. He's, um, he deals with law and justice. And it's interesting that he, he tells the story from a merchant, almost a merchant's perspective, because he, he tells that the story begins with these merchants going to Rome and hearing of this beautiful woman, seeing her, um, Constance, and you know the meaning, I mean, the, the name, there it is again, the word is the person. They're, they're the same. Name, name and person are one. She's extraordinarily beautiful and she's a virtuous woman. They go back to Syria and they tell their sultan, he's so taken with what they hear about Constance that um, he wants to marry her. But the, but the father, the emperor, um, of Constance will have nothing to do with it because she's Christian and the Sultan knows that if they're to marry he has to convert so he converts and he has his whole court convert to Christianity. The mother who is Islamic, I mean they are, he's Islamic, um, is so outraged and she gathers some of her people together and says she would die before she would violate Muhammad's law. So she tells the men to go through with the 
with the sacrament, and and then you know what happens after the marriage. She um, she kills the whole court, all these Muslims who have violated the law, including her son. She takes Constant and gives her these supplies and sets her adrift out on the ocean. And by the way, I don't, I don't know if any of you read Shakespeare's Pericles, but Pericles, the, the ties between this story and, and Shakespeare's Pericles to me is, are extraordinary. Um, you'd have to read it to see it. Pericles is one of the most amazing stories in literature. It's, he's the only man that I know of who hears the music of the spheres. The, 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 that intelligible order of beauty that surrounds our, envelops our world, permeates it, that we can't hear with our physical bodies. We can only hear it spiritually. Um, Dante helps get us to it at the end, but Pericles is the only man I know who actually hears it. Um, she ends up on, um, on the east coast of England in a place called Northumberland. It's, it's on the northeast coast between England and Scotland. And um, she's taken in by a warden and his wife. And the wife is so taken with Constant that she converts. And I think they're walking um, along, I think, a beach. And a blind man approaches and identifies Constant. He's blind, and he knows who she is, and the husband is so taken by the miracle that he converts. So she converted a, a sultan, so her power is, this is so important, her, her virtue is so powerful that she converts a, a sultan and his court. They're killed. Um, she is set adrift. She ends up coming to England, and she converts these two people who are pagan. Um, while she's there at this court, a young knight falls in love with her. She repulses his advances, and he's so outraged that he's tempted by Satan, that's the way Chaucer presents it, to take her life. So he sneaks into the bedroom where she is with the warden's wife and, and um, kills the wife and places the knife there to put the guilt on constant. When everybody discovers, they think she's... Um, the murderer, and she's going to be executed. When um, the king, Allah, returns, he hears the story. He's so taken by her beauty that he, he's not sure that the knight is telling the truth. He asks that a book be brought. And he makes the knight swear on the book, and when he does, the knight is killed. And immediately, everybody is so taken by that miracle that they're converted. And, and um, the king, Allah, marries Constance. Um, he goes off to war, and while he's gone, the mother of the knight plots against Constance. She forges letters, sends them to the king. They have a son. She sends the letters to the king. The king says he's going to be faithful to his wife, even in spite of what the mother says. And, um, and then she forges letters to, um, as, as coming from him so that people think um, she's done something wrong, and she uses the letters to, to send Constant off again. So she's sent off in the same boat, and she's set adrift again. Um, in every one of these instances, when she faces her a peril, her death, the likelihood of dying, she says a prayer. In this last time, when she sets off, the, the, one of the servants of the king gets on the boat with her, attempting wanting to rape her. She says, says a prayer to Mary. Something happens. The guy is knocked overboard. 
So in every one of these instances, when she's facing danger, she says, says a prayer, and she's saved. Um, she, so she set adrift again. This time, the, if I can get this right, the emperor is returning from a siege when he heard what the sultan had done, that they, or, or the mother had done, he butchered all these Christians. He goes and um, destroys them. He comes back, and he's in Rome. No, on the way, on the way there, they come across um, Constance's ship, and they take her to Rome. King Alba is repenting of his murder of that mother's, of the knight's mother. He comes to Rome to confess. When he's there, he sees this child, and it's, it's just, and he sees the resemblance between him and his wife, and immediately runs to her, and they're reconciled. The emperor, when he hears the news of the reconciliation, invites King Alba and, her, and the newly discovered wife to a dinner. When she comes, she sees her father, and he sees her. It's an extraordinary story, and in that moment, I, I think there's a parable aspect to the story. I'm, I'm not, it's hard to believe Chaucer didn't have this in him. It's the return of the father, because the um, Constance and the husband are only going to live together for, I think, just about a year or more, and then he's going to die, and it's at that point that she returns to the father. So there, I think there's, it's important that the, the book, the story ends with her returning to the father. Um, so that's the story of Constance, and, and it, what, what Chaucer is doing is showing us that not only a virtuous woman, he's showing, that I think the importance of the story is this, you remember, since we've read Boethius, God is at work everywhere. It doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. That's just not going to happen. But I think what he's showing us here is that when a person is being virtuous in the face of their struggles, they're more open to the help that God gives them, that God is working with them more. So, so she's an instrument of miracle after miracle after miracle. What we're meant to see is what we're meant to see is what happens when somebody actually lives Christ. There's just no way to underestimate it in the story. Um, when somebody lives Christ, when she gives up her life again and again and again, God is there. God approves. He's supporting. So that's the man of law story. In the prioress tale, you remember, the prioress is, she's presented as being a little bit too fussy. Um, too fussy. She's very particular. Um, she's a lovely young woman. That she's she's so she's very preoccupied with manners, in some sense too much. Chaucer's making fun of her the way he does everybody. She tells the story of this young boy who went to school and he had to pass through a Jewish ghetto area, and he always used to sing this song to Christ. And the Jews hated it so much that they captured the boy one day and slit his throat. And while he's in um, a state, you know. Um, I think one of the churchmen comes along and places the, the uh, wafer on a, a grain that's a symbol for the wafer, and the boy stops his singing. And everybody knows that they're in the presence of a miracle. He can, he can pass on and he can die. So it, it's, it's an expression partly of the tenderness of the nun, the prioress, that something motherly and child-caring, that she would choose that for her story, but once again, it's, um, it's a, a miracle takes place. It's involved in a sacrament. 
um, this young child loves Christ and sings and is killed for it. Um, I want to wait on the wife of Bath because I want to end with her because she just, there's a lot to her. In the Dorjan story, you remember that Franklin's Tale is one of the last stories in the book. Dorjan is this, again, a young, beautiful woman. Um, Avergus, this knight, loves her, declares his love for her. When she sees how virtuous she is, um, she, she consents to the marriage. And both of them um, commit themselves to the other. Um, 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 he, he, he commits himself to her with the understanding that she will be sovereign over him. Remember, this has been one of the important things about the courtly romance tradition, that the lover declares himself and the beloved will be his ruler. It's just very much a part of that whole medieval um, tradition. He gives her sovereignty um, with the understanding that, that she'll do nothing ever in public to embarrass him or, or to, not, to not do everything she can to make it clear to a public that, she, that he is her lord. So, um, and she swears to that. So there's a way in which they give sovereignty to each other um, as a way of declaring their love. So at the outset, they're, they're giving their wills. He has to go, and while he's gone, she becomes terrified that, that he, when he returns, he'll, he'll crash against the rocks there on the, on the ocean side. And she's grieving about it, almost dies because her grief is so great. That is, her fear for losing her husband is so great that she almost dies. Um, a young knight, a young lover, a beloved, or the young courtly lover, sees her in a garden. It's interesting how much of this takes place in a garden. Declares his love for her. Um, she dismisses him. He persists, and she says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll consent. I'll be your beloved if you can make those rocks go away. He goes, he's so much in the tradition of this courtly romance. He's sickened, he overcome with sickness. He loves her. He can't sleep. He can't eat. He almost dies away because his love is so great. And finally, at one point, I think his brother um, tells him of somebody he knows, and they go to see this man, this clerk, um, this student, who studies um, astrology and apparently has this power to work illusions. And so the Avergus, the, the lover, makes this deal with this magician figure that he will give him this amount of money if he will make the rocks disappear. The guy does, and Dorjan is faced with a dilemma. She loves her husband. She does not want to betray him. She's made this agreement that she will make love to this man if he gets rid of the rocks to protect her husband. He does, so she's facing this dilemma. The, the form it takes in her is she'd rather kill herself than dishonor her or her husband. She's open with her husband and tells him the truth, and the husband is so taken by her, her truthfulness that he says, I, I, I don't want you to do anything that would dishonor your truth. So the truth is absolutely crucial to him. So he, um, he sends her off to fulfill this engagement with this man. She's going to have sex. Um, she goes off and tells Aurelius, the, the courtly lover, um, that she's ready to pay her debt and he doesn't understand why she's so sad and he tells her and, she, and he's so taken by the 
by the humility of the husband and Dorjan's humility to go through with this, that he forgives the sin, or the, the sorry, the agreement. Then Aurelius left is left because he now he has to pay the magician. So he goes to the magician asking if he can't have a, you know, make an agreement so he can pay the loan off over time. And when the magician hears what Dorjan did, what the husband did, and what Aurelius did in forgiving the sin, he forgives the debt. So we began with the knight's tale. Remember with um, Palamon, our seat, Emily, passionately committed to the world. The two men were, were brothers, practically, and they're ready to kill themselves over this woman. Their passions are so great. She wants nothing to do with these men. Each man has to give up his will, has to deny himself, and it's only when he denies himself that he knows happiness. Amelia has to deny herself. She didn't want to marry him. When she does, there's this happiness at the end. The Franklin's Tale is one of the last stories, and it's a story about all these people who reach a point where they have to learn to give up their wills, to stop insisting on having their way. Um, Dorjan makes this foolish bargain to save, and she does it for her husband. I mean, it's really silly. Um, she's, she's too frightened of what might happen to her husband, and she makes this foolish deal. She has to stand by it. When she does, she's okay. When her husband hears it, he sends her off. He's okay. He has to, he has to give up his wife. You know? When she goes to the Aurelius um, and he hears the story, he gives up his claim on her. So once again, and then the magician, the magic figure, all of these people come to a virtue when they deny themselves what they want. And it's at that moment that they enter into something like a Christ-like love. It's been one of the, it's actually the major theme tying all of the stories together. So um, we just, last week we dealt with all these stories of church officials who were doing everything for themselves. They, blo they, they gloat, they brag about it. I do this, I get money, I want this. I mean, they're, they're just, they're brash about it. In this story, we're seeing, and in Constant particularly, we're seeing stories of these people who would do amazing things, who learn to give up their wills, and when they do, something divine happens to them. It's like God approves. Something is given that they're more in tune with Christ and what he did, and their lives are changed. So every story works out. You know, it has a purpose. But in these stories, there's a kind of blessedness. There's a fulfillment of this kind of love that we, we believe, I mean, that Chaucer believes, is humanly possible to the degree to which we try to live like Christ. So I want to look at the wife of Bastail because this is a story on another scale. But before we do, any... I can understand you're not married yet, this or that, but right. why is that so good? Good. It's such a good question. Anybody answer, Valerie? It's a really good question. Because, wait, because Chaucer's Catholic. Wait, by the way, I don't know if this will help, but I, I think it's a really good question. You remember when we did the, uh, uh, the Millers and the Reeves tale? Yeah. Adultery was going on everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to play this light, but I just want to put this in context. So, however we deal with this, keep it in a larger. You know, this is the Canterbury. They're all going to St. Thomas. Everybody knows that a marriage is sacrament, it's sacred. Everybody knows that adultery is mortal sin. In the Miller's tale, Allison finally gives in to Nicholas. She's going to sleep with him. They're tricking the husband. In the Reeves tale, remember when the two men get to the Miller's house that night after everybody's drunk. John sneaks into bed with the Miller's wife, and Alan, yeah, Alan sneaks into bed with their daughter. So there's this <laughs> loose kind of love going on everywhere. Um, we've gone through that. So, so Chaucer, in one sense, one of the, no, let me stop. I'm not going. And now we're dealing with the coupling or uh, marriage again because marriage is a central theme. It's a central concern for Chaucer. In this one, you've got a really virtuous woman. And a really virtuous man. It's not like the people in the Reeves are, they're both really good people. And the husband says, because remember, her choice is to kill herself. Which is also a sin. But she's committed her word. The, the, issue, the issue here is keeping your word again and again and again. So, how do we, anybody have a response to Valerie's question? Because it's a good question. How do you justify that? Yeah. Anybody? Karen, anything? Well, I didn't see it as giving up his wife. I saw it as the word is your bond. Say it again? Your word? Your word is your bond. So that was the most important thing in, you yeah. know, for each one of those individuals. Yeah. But you give your vow, which is your word, to someone else. So I, I guess I'm, made, I'm, I'm being very literal. No, but it's good. Karen, what, where would you, what, can you add anything to that? Your word is, how'd you put it? Your word is bond. Bond. Can you say any more to that? Well, once you've, once you've made a vow, um, it's yours to keep. Let me ask it this way, because this is a Christian world. People don't question themselves as much as we do. I mean, this is a... In the, in the, Christianity was much less reflective. People held their faith in a much less reflective way there. They grew up with it. We live in a much more intellectual, reflective age. But would Christ condemn her if she went to keep her vow? She repented. Say what, Karen? Karen. <laughs> well, no, I'm with Valerie on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think she repented to her husband. I mean, her husband came back. She didn't think her husband was going to come back, mm -hmm. but he showed up. And so that was her repentance. Her, she was honest with him to say, this is what I did because of my love for you. I wanted you to return. It was foolish, but I think that was her, that was her repenting of her not believing in, in, in the fact that he was going to safely return. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? Come on, I want, what's your thoughts? What do you think? She's married. She gives her word to this courtly lover. She does it assuming that it's never going to happen. You know? What Chaucer, when, when, you know, we've talked about this a lot. What Chaucer's doing is partly teaching us to be careful of what we say. She doesn't think it's going to happen. How often do people, I mean, you, the, the book is full of these, you know, she, Chaucer recounts all these times when, in the Old Testament, people make these vows. I'm trying to think of the guy who, 
put his daughter in the line, and the first person who comes in the door. That's, oh, yeah, I know the story. And he has, to, he has to give up his daughter. So one of the wait, this thing about the word that Christ is the word, do we have to take our words more seriously? We're in a modern world. People break words all the time. We're in a different world. But in that world, um, I think Karen was right. Your word was who you were. Yeah. We don't we don't do that today. But Cole, I'm asking you, should she have done it? He knows enough of the story. I'm giving you the story. According to what I, she's not going to get you off. According to what I said, she she made this that she made this promise to this guy to go to bed with him if he would get rid of the rocks to protect her husband. Husband comes back. Guy comes to collect his debt, and the husband says, "You have to make good on your word. You have to make good on your word." She goes off. So and Karen said. Well, she started saying, your word's your bond. Now I'm not sure where she is. <laughs> okay. Should she have kept it or not? How would Christ look at it? Well, arguably, didn't Christ also, like, he gave his word to die for our sins, right? But right before he died, he also went back and he, like, reflected. He's like, should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? Like, right before Jews came to betray him. You mean in the garden? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... But he went through with it in the end. So isn't that what this woman's technically doing? Like, she, like she, I guess, she, I don't know if she thinks it's going to pass. She, she doesn't, obviously, but, like, Desperate Christ. Desperate times called for Desperate She wasn't really. I, personally, I think, like, from my own perspective, so she, she made this commitment from a desperate place, not thinking about what she was right. committing to. Right. When it all came to fruition, her husband was fine, she she kind of backpedaled on her decision, but she honored her husband or respected her husband. Like, you know, we're, that, we're called to do that as wives to like honor and respect mm -hmm. yeah. husbands, right? And he actually is the one who told her to go through with it. Right. So in that sense, I almost feel like she respected his decision to have her go through with it. It sounded like she was not gonna go through yeah. with it. She, she, did, she did not dishonor him. And he and her vow to marry and be honest, you know, to be a virtuous wife, was given to him, right. and he released her from that. But it's not his choice to release. Wait, it, hold on. To, it, hold on. Are you done? Oh, sorry. I thought you were, sorry, I'm sorry. I thought. Is that it? Yeah, I was just saying that she didn't. She in, involved him in it. She told him about it. She was honest, and he said. Certain things are more important than that vow, being who you said you would be. And marriage is a sacrament, so I find it kind of odd. That's well, all. Yeah, I think I, it's I, my question, honest. though, to you all of, of all of us, it would what if, what if it was reversed the situation? If it was the you know instead of instead of the woman, the, the, because the man gave the you know gave his his surrender, would it work the same way? If 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 he was the one who basically said to, let's say, a woman that, you know. The trouble with and would that. And would that apply? Because I think most every woman I've ever met said, you know, you fool around, you're dead. <laughs> the, 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 the dynamic, the, the dynamic rests on a, 
couple of assumptions here that I, I think we've forgotten, particularly in our world, but one of them is that the, the man is thought of as being lord of the family, the head of the household. In Christian, according to Christian terms, that's not a position of abuse or arbitrary. If he's taking it seriously at all, it, it'll, it'll, either it means he serves her or something's wrong. He, he'll be using that power for himself. So when the, and the modern world has lost that because it sees things in terms of power. It doesn't understand service or love. So something, we've got to shake that somehow to get to this. So one is that it, it assumes lordship. He's already said that to her when they got married. But the other is, is this whole notion of courtly love. And I, I, don't, I don't know if, if this notion of equality in our age is just put it beyond us. I don't see women falling in love with men for their beauty. And let me just elaborate on this for a second. Remember the paradigms going back to Homer um, were that, and bring in the biblical things, all the, all the, the whole historic church would agree with this. One of the defining characteristics of women that distinguishes them from men is their beauty. They image something transcendent in God. We got that with Homer. Remember the Calypso and Circe? That one of the gravest, one of the gravest dangers men face is the beauty of women. I mean, it's, it's compelling. You can't read anything in literature. Men are undone by it. You, you, women think they need power today? For God's sake, all they have to do is walk down the... I mean, they've already got more power than... The, you know. I mean, watch a woman down the street and watch men stop. It's not because she's in an office or... The, the, the power that women have because of their beauty, according traditionally, is transcendent. It is. There's a quality. Um, and, and women today don't have to be models Enter into a marriage and a man loves a woman, he's going to find a beauty in her, whether she thinks she's beautiful or not. It just defines such a relationship. Milton did this. Eve was known for her beauty. Remember, she looked in the pool. Men are known for their, this is Milton, I don't agree with him all, but men are known for their nobility, their, nobility, their strength. They're larger. They tend to risk themselves. And most men do it for what reason? For a woman. Well, Take, it, it goes wait, back to the through. whole story in the garden, like, right? So the, the whole reason that what happened in the garden was an original sin is both parties were essentially abusing their roles in, in the, um, their gender roles, right? So Adam, the reason he is imputed with the original sin, even though in the story it seems like Eve's the one taking all the actions, right, is because right. he's standing right there when Satan is tempting her, and he does nothing to protect her, right? His role is protector. He does nothing to do anything about it. Eve, then, for her part, um, abuses her attractiveness and essentially gets Adam to do something wrong, and so they, they've both kind of gone against, like, the that theology of the body that's been put into them right at the very beginning, you know, and then and then the, this this power that you talk about, like where, where beauty is, has this attractive quality, I mean, that goes all through the biblical narrative. I mean, look at look at Esther, where... You don't have to stop at biblical, I mean, you just... Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> all I mean, of literature. Yeah, uh, yeah, with the story of David, right. you know, and... Right. and you move into any of the Samson, tales. I mean, Samson. Troy. I mean, they started a war over her. Let me, know, so. yeah. 
Uh, I, just note, I want to go on because this is a larger discussion, but let me offer another thought on the biblical. The class has heard it before, so but um, I don't see Eve standing in front of Adam with the temptation. I mean, I don't. The the Bible doesn't show that. You may assume it, but it's not there. Let me give it just a different reading and then go on. We can talk about this at another time if, if you're here again. But it seems to me one of the things that the Bible leaves us with is um, that they didn't sin quite. I think the way you're presenting it. Eve's sin was her susceptibility. Whatever happened, we don't know. All we know is that Satan tempted her. She was susceptible. I, I think that's important because I think it leaves us with a sense of the susceptibility of woman to temptations. Not sexual, but whatever the attractions are. She was tempted. Adam wasn't. So, and, and this, this is theologically, this is orthodoxy from forever. Milton's got it, but Catholics have it forever. Um, the angels chose to rebel. They were damned because they chose. Mild makes that clear, but Tom, Thomas had already you know, done it. Um, according to the orthodox theology of the church, the angels, those who chose, are damned. There's no remediation. They, they can't be saved. I, I don't know if God's going to do that. I don't know what the church does with that, but they're damned. Well, they don't have their passions to get in the way of making a, a full intellectual choice. Like <laughs> Hold on. Oh, Justin, there's, hold on. <laughs> Hold on for a minute, okay? Okay. If angels are anything, they're intellectual. They have no passions. They don't have a body. Hold right. on. Just hold on, if you would. Angels are intellect. They're all intellect. There's no passions. Right. So the, in, the sin is an intellectual sin. They don't have bodies. They don't have passions. Right. Satan's sin is intellectual. Um, they, chose to, they chose to rebel. So their fall was immediate. Thomas says it's in the first instance. I think that's true. Those who didn't, didn't fall. Wait, wait, wait. In Adam's case, he, he, he was conscious. So if you talk about the greater fault, Eve was tricked. Adam chose. He did not want to give his, up his wife. So there's a, a sin of susceptibility in the woman in that Genesis. And there's a sin of um, uxoriousness, excessive love of the woman. Here, a, Excessive love of the woman over God. It's exorious. He makes her more important. And he chooses. So let me not let me stop it. The point that I wanted to make, the angels fell. God could do something to forgive Adam and Eve because Eve was tricked. Adam wasn't. But there's an opening there for 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 because the problem with the redemption is God chose to defy, I mean, man chose to disobey God. But there was a there was extenuating circumstances. Um, Satan tricked Eve. So there's an opening for Christ to come in to answer that original sin. He could only do it as a man and a God because the, it was the man who committed the sin, but it was against God. If that sin were to be answered, it would have to be, it could only be answered by a human being who is God. Remember, that's Dante's great argument. That's St. Thomas's great argument. If you look at the nature assumed, if you look at the nature of Christ assumed, no act was more just. He took on our sin to answer an injustice. If you look at the person who assumed the nature, there was no act more unjust. It was God. That's the dual nature of what Christ did. I don't want to, if you can, the, the question here is her beauty and, let me just say this because we've got to, I want to look at the wife of Bath, sorry, but here, just one thing. It, what's, one of the things that's interesting to me is um, 
um, that truth is as important as it is to um, Avergas and the bond, the word. And it's interesting to me that for her to take on that Aaron is to take on a sin, not because she wants to sin or is enticed or what's the word? Lewd or the it's the when you sexually prom huh? promiscuous. Promiscuous. Not she's not doing it. So she's not entering into that sin promiscuously. And what's interesting is because she does, everything turns out all right. The, 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 the knight is so taken by her humility, her willingness to do that. So once again, it, it's, it's extraordinary to watch. A miracle takes place when, when somebody has the courage to risk a death. It reminds me of Huckleberry Finn. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when, when your faith, or no, sorry, this is the other class. <laughs> Sorry. If you think it's getting bad, this was it. This was as Elizabeth Van Seaton because we're doing Merchant of Venice. God, it's just getting bad. Um, Huck says, "If I let if I let Jim go, I'm going to go to hell." Because remember, Jim is the Negro slave, and Miss Watson owns him. They're, they're, he's a runaway slave. Because if you live according to social conventions that are religious, they are for the Protestant, particularly in the South. If you live by that convention, you're damned. He says, if I let him go, I'm damned. If I hold to them, I've got to go back, but I'm imprisoning Jim. He lets him go believing that he could be damned. What happens? Saved. That there are these moments when conventions can't be the guide. All the way through scripture, we're asked to make our judgments according to eternal things, to a God who's good, a God who's just, a God who's merciful, who understands. And that puts us at risk at times. There are time, I'm sure everybody in this room, I, I cannot believe everybody in this room has not found themselves thinking, if I do this, I'm damned. If I do this, I'm damned. This is not good. And if I do this, it's going to go against everybody. And if I don't do it, I'm not going to be doing what's right. That there's some, what's interesting to me about it, it's when she risks her life, gives it up, that everything works out all right. Because the love is so great that it, once again, it's like constant. That, that it's this self-sacrificial love seems to make an opening for God to do something. Its power for working miracles is extraordinary. We've seen it again and again and again in the stories. Let me stop. Even if you have disagreements or... I want to go to the wife of Beth because um, she, and do this as briefly as I can. You know that in the wife of Beth, she has the longest prologue of any of the stories. Her, her stories, her prologue is probably twice as long as any story in the novel. And all she does, what she does principally is berate men. These men, this long history of men complaining about the failures of women. Her two texts, or three texts, one text is, um, all these men who talk about the woes of marriage are fools. Um, marriage is a good thing, otherwise God wouldn't have sanctioned it. So all these men are foolish. The other is, um, um, they're, um, so men who make this case that marriage is a woe are dumb. It just, just shows how little they know. The other is that these men, all they do is talk about the failures of women. They don't talk about anything else. That just, again, shows how stupid they are. And, and the third is, sex is really good. 
and she obviously can't have enough of it because she's gone through five husbands. Um, we don't have time to go through all of this, but um, let me just read a couple of passages quickly. Can you turn to the wife of Bath? Um, she makes clear she's had five husbands and worn them out. Um, she does all she can to make these men um, serve her. Um, when they do something, she she shows them how. Um, um, how bad they are and reminds them of that so that left with the guilt that they, she leaves them with they're more willing to do what she says on page 263 now gentlemen on and tell my tale as I hope to drink good wine and ale to tell the truth those husbands that I had three of them were good two were bad the three of them I call good were rich and old so she got as much out of them as she could in terms of money um, she forced them to do things. She, she said, 264, So help me God, I have to laugh outright, remembering how I made them work at night. And faith I set no store by it. She got no pleasure out of it. It was to me. They'd given me their treasure, so I had no need of diligence, winning their love or showing reverence. They loved me well enough, no heaven above. Why should I make a dainty of their love? She got land from them. She got wealth from them. Um, a knowing's work... A knowing woman's work is never done to get a lover if she had one. But as I had them eating from my hand as they yielded me their golden land, why then take trouble to provide them pleasure unless to profit or amuse my leisure? So she only gave sex once they got what she, what she got. Yeah. She only gave sex when... She got what she wanted. Yeah, right. Um, so, I, I, we don't have time to read this, but... Um, Lecherous is the word that I was looking for. Lecherous is the one. I, oh, 270. I owed them nothing, paid them word for word, putting my wits to you. If they ever criticized her or said anything negative, she would meet them back. So, um, 270. What ails you, man, to grumble so and groan? Why, just take what you want, not all your own. Why, take it all, man, take it every bit. St. Peter, what a love you have for it. For if I were to sell my belt chose, I could go walking fresher than her. That she threatens them, I'm going to go out and use my sexual prowess. Mm -hmm. That's how my first three husbands were undone. Now let me tell you about my... So the fourth one is not very much. She loved the fifth one more than anyone. And she says she loved him more than anyone because he didn't give in to her all the time. But he had this habit of reading these stories of how bad women were throughout history. Finally she got so irritated that she took the book from him, ripped out three pages. He got so upset that he got up and... and they started to fight. He gets pushed into the fire. He stands up and knocks her down. And just quickly, if I can get there. Sorry? Yeah, knocked her out. Um, oh, I, I, it's funny. I'm not going to get the. She, um, but she says, "I'm dead. I'm dead. What, you, you killed me." Um, <coughs> Um, what have you done? And he's so overcome with guilt and shame for what he does that he promises never to hit her again, never to do anything. And she becomes master. She, she gets sovereign. It's what, it's what she makes clear all women want. On the page of 276, 
bottom of the page, then there are good ones mentioned in the Bible. For take my word for it, there is no libel on women that the clergy will not paint. Priests have nothing good to say about women, except when writing a woman's saint, but never good of another woman, though. Who called the lion savage, do you know? By God, if women had but written stories like those the clergy keep in oratories, there would be fair accounts, I think. But I love that line. Chaucer has it. Um, not who called the lion savage. He said, who painted the lavish sign, the, the lion savage? Because what she's saying is, um, what if the lion had painted the picture? The picture shows men taming a savage lion. So I'm in. She's, the implication is, what if the lion had told the story? The implication is, the story you get is, tends to be biased, that all these men are you know, just, you can't trust them. And then you notice she goes on to tell the story of this knight who raped a woman and was, who was sentenced to death. And the, it's interesting, the queen wants to forgive him if he'll only find out what all women want. He goes searching for a year. He meets this old hag in a forest, and she says she knows the answer. She whispers it in the ear. He goes back to tell the queen, what all women want is mastery, sovereignty. And the queen agrees, and his life is spared. The old woman comes up, and she, she calls in her claim, her oath, because he made an oath again. If his life was spared, she would marry him. He, he's moping and whining again. And she says, what do you want? Would you rather have an old hag that will always be faithful or a young, beautiful woman who will not? And he said, he said, the choice is yours. He gives up his will. When he does, she turns into this extraordinarily beautiful woman. What's the meaning of that story? I want to go to the wife of Bath really quickly, but what's the meaning of the story again? It, it's, it looks like magic. It looks like it's something unbelievable. She's, he says, you choose... She does, she has mastery, and suddenly she's, is this just ridiculous? Um, it's not, what do you call it, um, slap tape, slap, slapstick. No, it's, not. it's not slapstick. What do you guys do with that? It's fantasy. It looks like the lion tape the men. Say? It says it looks like the lion tamed the men. The lioness or the lion? The lioness tamed the mm -hmm. man. What about in the, I mean, this suddenly being transformed into this beautiful, what do, you, what do you guys do with that? Linda, what do you do with it? Maybe Jeannie. Because he gives up his will and agrees to marry her, even though he doesn't want to because she's ugly. So he gives up his will, and therefore he gets good in return. She turns into someone beautiful. Yeah. Could it be that he loves the person that she truly is? Like, not just her bodily person, but her actual whole personhood? And so because of that love that he has for her, it is like she's transformed before him into a beautiful person because he's not just loving her physically, but he's actually loving her on a deeper level. Yeah, that's my own sense, and I, I'm not sure that I quite put it that way, but that's a good. I think it's how much when we love the way we've been asked to. How much 
will we see the world differently? It was always there, or was it there? If we love the right way, it suddenly opens to us. I th I, I'm sure most of us felt that, but if we, aren't we surprised sometimes if we love better that the world somehow... It's not like everything's going to get straight for us. You know, but, but if we love better, we see things differently. If the critical mind is in the way all the time, it's nothing but bad. You know, it's easy to complain and find fault in, but if, if that gets out of the way suddenly, I mean, exactly as you, the, I mean, that's my question. Did God create any of us ugly? How, how much of the intrinsic beauty that any one of us has suddenly will be there if we, love, if we get all our, the selfishness out of our way got that out of the way and suddenly it's there. It's a beauty that it's like it was always waiting. It just waited for us to do the, the right thing. Any ironies we've got to stop. Any ironies about the wife of Bath Tail? It's a, her. The prologue. Any ironies? It seems like it's aspirational. Her, her tale is what she would really like to live and would like to, to be, even though all her experience, she mentioned her experience is her own new standard, you know, in the very beginning. Yeah. But this is aspirational to me. Yeah. She, she'd like men to give up their, their will. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. in, in that. Mm -hmm. But we're asked to do that. We're asked to give up our will. All of us, yeah. All of us yeah. are. And, and the reward is not what we see in front of us. Our reward is what we trust yeah. is going to happen. It's not, you know, if I'll do this, I'll get this. Right. It, you, it's, you have to do it, and then there will be an amazing thing, unlike anything you expected or wanted. Right. We're all asked to put our hand out and say, take what you want. And I'm... Yeah. Give me what you want, take what you want. It's your will, not mine. We were all asked to do that. And there's this, I, the older I get, we go through the world as if we're deserving of so much. Christ didn't love us because we're deserving it. So it's, we keep thinking, I deserve better. I shouldn't be treated this way. You know that, anyway, here, here's the, the sense of, here, here's one of the ironies I want to just leave you with because we've got to go. One of the ironies is um, she gives this long list of all these men who have nothing good to say about women. And she's dealing, she's reading texts. They're all texts. It's really good. She's reading texts about all these men. And it's really interesting to me that when you look at what she's doing, she actually places herself in those texts. She's selfish. She uses men. Um, um, she, she manipulates them. She wants it. Did, put it this way. Did, did she ever, I mean, I don't know how much, which, did she ever really love any of those men? She used every one of them. She's doing exactly, I mean, as much as she's critical of all these men, she goes on for 30 pages criticizing these men, and she's doing exactly, what she's doing is placing herself in those texts. She doesn't love, and yet the story, I mean, it's such a paradox. The story that she tells is this longing an old hag to be loved um, by this, lu this lusty knight. So here, the last thought. One of the most extraordinary things about Chaucer, one of the most extraordinary, if you listen to all these tales, everybody's tailing, tail, telling tales on everybody else. Every one of these men is trying to show, I'm better than you are. 
I'm smarter than you are, I deserve more than you are, all these men are bad. Every one of them shows the worst parts of us as prophetic. Every one of them is showing the worst parts, except one. Chaucer's telling these stories. Is Chaucer, does Chaucer ever judge these people? He does not judge them. They're judging themselves. They're exposing themselves, story after story. They're showing who they are. He does not judge them. Their own actions judge them. What he's doing is taking every one of these stories in which men are in, with the sense of rivalry, getting back, having one-upsmanship, he puts them all in rhyme. And he helps us laugh at human foibles. He's asking us to have a charity in what we do with each other. Because otherwise, we, we're just doing what all these pilgrimages are doing. It's the poet. It's the poet who shows us ourselves and brings us a spirit of charity that's rare in the stories themselves. Is that clear? It's just an amazing quality to me, what Chaucer's doing with that rhyme. Anyway, that's it. Um, Griselda, Griselda's story, last Chaucer story we'll read, and Shakespeare's as well. Say? Chester. What's the what's the price on it? I don't know. Pay pay next week, you guys. Pay pay us next week for the Shakespeare. All right. What's after that? I don't know. Um, um, Merchant of Venice and Anthony Cleopatra. We'll do Shakespeare.